So as I was thinking about this question, how do you evaluate, your, how do you find your purpose, how do you evaluate what you give your life to, I came up with three things. Um, I thought about, okay, finding something that serves others, something that's not completely self-referential, but something that is other-focused. Um, something that makes you someone who you would want to be around, right? Something that if you did this thing, then in 20 years or 30 years, you'd actually be somebody that you wanted to be around or be friends with. Um, and third, something that is a vision that is big enough to handle the weight of your personality. That can actually handle you giving yourself to it. Something that wouldn't collapse under the weight of your person. But this isn't how we make decisions, is it? We don't like go through a checklist and then, um, and then run our decisions through the checklist. We, what we do is that we discover something. Or we discover something. We, we experience it. We begin to love it. And then we begin to build our lives around it. Um, right? I was thinking through things I see with this. I've got a, a guy I know who has done this with music. And he's my age. And he, um, he tours with the Grateful Dead. He travels around with the Grateful Dead. He actually has a clothing company that is uh, geared towards Grateful Dead stuff. Um, and this is very easy. Like, it's very easy to know how to give your life to this, right? You, uh, you listen to the music. You wear the, the Dead shirts. You go to the shows, right? It's something that people... He experienced something. He loved it. He gave himself to it. Um, sports, right? You can do this with sports. I had a fraternity brother who was a Saints fan. Um, I went to school in New Orleans. And it was so funny. He, he had season tickets. He went to all the games. He had all the Saints gear. Um, he was constantly on Saints message boards. He knew all of the stats, and he hated the team. I mean, they were bad. This is before Drew Brees. I mean, they were, they were awful. But he, um, you going to turn down the buzz? Yeah. Um, uh, he, let's should I just keep talking and you can figure out what's because he knows what he's doing. Yeah, I was actually going to tell Philson, and then I called you out and you're done. Okay. <laughs> Is it better? That fixed it. Sure. Is that better? Is it no longer ringing in your ears? Um, okay. Also, people do this with religion or with ideology. Like, I don't know if you've ever met this guy, but the Christianity guy. Right? He has the Christian t-shirts and bracelets and the Christian bling. He only listens to Christian music. His big thing is religion. He's really into Christianity. Um, he says really Christian-y things all the time. Um, he's all about Christianity, but you're not sure that he's actually a Christian. Right? He, he, he has this, this religiosity that he holds on to. Um, or relationships. Maybe you've seen this with a, with a friend. Maybe you've experienced it for yourself. That a person gives themselves fully to another person in a relationship. And then they break up and everything falls apart. And it's really bad. Um, it gets really bad. Um, or if any of you are entrepreneurship minors, you're learning about your personal brand. Right? Like this is, this is everything right now. Um, who here has been told to develop a personal brand? Anybody? No, a couple. Okay, yeah, it's in the water. Um, and so, how do you serve this mission of a personal brand, bearing witness to yourself? Um, it's like you believe in yourself, and you give everything. Get, the attempt is to get everyone else to believe in the thing that you believe in too. And if this is the thing you give yourself to, like if you give yourself to your own brand, then you will either be reduced. Like if this is your highest aim, you'll either be reduced to a puddle of anxiety, or you'll become a sociopath narcissist um, because you're so into yourself. Um, and you'll be unbearable to be around. Um, another thing I thought about was good causes. Like, what if you actually are giving yourself to something that's a good cause? Right? People give their lives to helping others. They want to make the world a better place. 
Uh, I had a couple friends in college who went on to serve with the Peace Corps, and they, had, they went to serve in Ethiopia, and they were two other people on their team who the Peace Corps was their highest good. And so they went into this program saying, we are going to change the world in Ethiopia. And by the end of their two years, they were completely bitter and angry because right, you can only do so much as two Westerners in Ethiopia with the Peace Corps. Ended up bitter and angry. Um, so none of these things are bad in themselves. Why don't you hear me say that? None of these things are bad in themselves. But when we put them through our criteria, do they serve the common good or do they serve others? Something benefits others. They, do they make you somebody you want to be around? Is this vision, and the third, is this vision big enough to handle you giving yourself to it? They can handle all of you and all of your you-ness that won't collapse, uh, collapse under the weight. When we put this, these through this criteria, they fall up short. And what they reveal is that whatever you set as your purpose, um, what this reveals is that we all have this human need for our lives to be about something. For our lives to bear witness to some reality, some beautiful thing outside of ourselves. And when you walk through a list like the one we just walked through, and you begin to see yourself in it, you begin to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know that one, because that one, uh, that was all about me, or oh, I've definitely done that, and it crushed me, or yeah, I've done that, and it turned me into a jerk. Um, It becomes really easy to beat yourself up, right? You keep... When you, when you give yourself to one of these things and it fails you or you collapse under it, um, you think, I just keep giving myself to things and they don't satisfy me. And at best, they leave you wanting more and at worst, they can destroy you. So what do you do in response? Well, we just, what we end up doing is we tell ourselves that we should just stop loving, right? We tell ourselves, make these vows to ourselves that we should just close our hearts off, put our heads down and push through. That the, the thing that's wrong with me is my heart. Um, I, I love too much or I get swept away too easily. Um, and so we beat ourselves up that we desire to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And we blame our hearts for loving the wrong things. And that gets us into trouble. Um, so we just want to we want to shut down. We want to clamp down. Um, and I want to wager that we're actually looking at this the wrong way. Perhaps that it's not that our desires are too strong, but they're actually they're actually too weak. Um, there's a quote on the front of your bulletin from C.S. Lewis. And I want to read to you. And he says this. Um, He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So perhaps if you've experienced this of of giving yourself to something and it it wrecking you or failing you um, or turning you into a selfish jerk... Um, perhaps is that what your life is bearing witness to is too small. Um, what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at Ephesians together. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians together this semester, and we're going to see what Paul says into this question. Um, we're going to read Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. I'm going to read this for us. This is God's word for us tonight. And it's given to us in love. For this reason, I, Paul... A prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Paul calls the mystery of Christ and see how it answers our questions. Um, so our outline is written on the bulletin if you want to follow along. Um, what is the mystery of Christ? Is it good for others? Does it make me someone that I would want to be around? And is it big enough to handle the weight of my life? Um, so first, what is the mystery of Christ? Well, the mystery of Christ, Paul says, is a revelation that the Gentiles are co-receivers of the promise. So he says in verse 3 that it is a mystery made known by revelation. And when we hear the word mystery, we think of, in English, we think of some dark secret, um, something that's puzzling, something that's inexplicable. But the Greek word mysterion is actually, it means something else. It's, um, it's something that it's an, an open secret, something that was once hidden but is now revealed. And so um, it's not something that you can discover on your own. It's not something you can go and figure out, but it's something that was hidden that you didn't know about that has now been uncovered or revealed to you. And Paul says that the mystery of Christ, so the mystery that God had in Christ hidden for the ages that he's now revealed, is that the Gentiles, so all of the non-Jews, are now co-heirs and co-members and co-partakers of the promise. They are full partners. Okay, so what is the promise? The promise that Paul is referring to here is the promise of the Old Testament, the promise that God made to Abraham, that the nations, the entire world would be blessed through Abraham's family. Um, I was reading in Psalm 67 this morning that says this, it says that the blessing of the Lord goes forth to Israel so that the Lord may be known all over the earth and among, among the nations. So the way that the Old Testament tells the story is that the Jews were God's chosen people and the world would receive their blessing through them. And this is what the Jews thought that the promise was, the full extent of the promise, that the world would be blessed because they interacted with Israel, with the Jews. Um, and so it's kind of like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So um, Bill Gates is worth $95 billion, and he and Melinda Gates have started this foundation. You're probably familiar with it, where they, uh, over the past 10 years, they have invested $10 billion in global health. And I watched an interview with Bill Gates today where he talked about this being the greatest investment he's made with his life. That he has a commitment, he and his wife have a commitment to providing medical care to the poorest children in the world. So they provide vaccines and malaria drugs. And they also provide um, the distribution of these drugs because they found that the poorest of the poor were getting, weren't getting access. So they had to figure out how to distribute the drugs so that they actually got to the people who were the poorest of the poor. And this is an incredible blessing. Like they have strategized and invested and poured their money and their time and their resources into helping the poorest of the poor and lifting them out of poverty. They, these children, these poor children have been blessed through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And that in a way is what Israel through God, where Israel thought that God meant when he said that they would be a blessing to the nations. That the nations of the world will be blessed through you. 
that, that ethnic Israel, the Jewish people, that their presence in the world would be sort of in a way, the way that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation blesses the poorest of the world. Now, what if this happened? What if instead of just providing medical treatment and providing drugs and care for the poorest of the world, um, what if Bill and Melinda Gates adopted these children? Like, what if just instead of going and being a blessing to them, they actually went to them and made the poorest children in the world Gateses? Said, you now belong to our family. All that you, we have is yours. Paul's saying that's the mystery of Christ. That those who were outside, those who were far off, have been brought in. They become co-heirs, meaning they get the same inheritance. Co-members, they get the same rights. Co-partakers, they get the same benefits. This is the mystery of Christ. Right? Bill Gates is worth $95 billion. Imagine being adopted into his family. Becoming a co-heir, a co-member, and a co-partaker with his children. Right? That is an insane amount of riches. And it's countable. Like it's actually, you can, you can quantify it. And Paul says that the riches of Christ, which are yours through the gospel, are unsearchable, unmeasurable, infinite. And Paul says that this promise comes in Christ Jesus. He said that the way into this is through Jesus. This is what we read and talked about last week. That the cross is how Jesus has accomplished this. That on the cross, Jesus was killed by sin. He took your sin onto himself to cleanse you and to redeem you. And on the cross, Jesus killed sin. He defeated the thing that separates you from God and separates you from his people. And on the cross, Jesus was torn apart. So that on the cross, the dividing wall between people was torn apart. And so now God is creating a new, single, multicultural human society, which is both the family of God and the place where he dwells, his temple. And Paul says this promise comes in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Through the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of what God has done. It's not advice about what you need to do, but it's, it's not something that you achieve, but it's the good news that God has done that you receive. So the mystery is that it's not just for the Jews, but for us. Unless you are ethnically Jewish, you are a Gentile. It is for, it is for all of us Gentiles. Um, this means that we should then expect the gospel for to, be, to be for people who are not like us. Because it was, at the time, it was inconceivable that the Gentiles will be included. So that's the mystery of Christ. So for our questions, is this good for others? Is the mystery of Christ good for others? Well, we live in an age that says no, right? Our current age says that the church and the Christian faith is actually bad for our culture. Um, It's bad for people. It's bad for societies. Um, A lot of college campuses, Wake Forest is unique in the way that we get to gather. Um, There are a lot of other college campuses where the Christian groups are are not allowed to meet on campus, where um, campus ministers uh, are get written up for um, hate speech for what they say from up front. Like it is the the Christian faith is seen as something that is not good and should be excluded. Um, And more and more there is a hostility and a disdain for the Christian church in the West. There's a sociologist at Baylor named Robert Woodbury, and he disagrees with this premise. In his work, he says um, what he's found is that Christian men, missionaries turn out to be the single—excuse me—Christian missionaries turn out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. Woodbury's research claims that areas where Christian missionaries had a significant presence in the past are, on average, more economically developed today, with comparatively better health. Lower infant mortality, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, 
greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. Now, he is a scholar, so he does admit that there were and are racist missionaries and missionaries who do self-centered things. But he adds this. He says, if that were the average effect, we would expect that the places where the missionaries had influence to be worse than the places where missionaries weren't allowed or the restricted areas where missionaries couldn't go. And that what we find on all accounts is exactly the opposite, that wherever missionaries have been allowed to go, the quality of life for everyone there has improved. And he concludes this. He says, most missionaries don't set out to be political activists, or, but they came to reform through the back door. All of these positive outcomes were somewhat unintended. And Woodbury's research found that the unintended positive outcomes of preaching this gospel, this gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, has been the best good for others throughout history. David Bentley Hart, um, who's a, a professor and, an, and a, um, an essayist in his book, Atheist Delusions, he makes the same point. He says that the genuinely humane values of modernity, um, everything that we see is humane. Every idea that we have of benefiting another person, um, of caring about another, about lifting another up, all of this have historic roots in Christianity. So why do I share all this? Um, as crazy as it sounds to our disenchanted modern ears, the work that Jesus is doing in his church to bring all peoples together in him is not just good for others, but it is the only movement in human history that has lifted up those who are at the bottom and brought in those who are on the outside and loved those who call themselves its enemies. And this is the mystery of Christ, that it's for all who call upon, it is for all who call upon Christ in faith. So is it good for others? Yes. And does it make me someone who I want to be around? Um, have you ever heard someone say, I don't like who I've become? That what people have given themselves to does something to them. And then when they look themselves in the mirror, they're like, I don't like what I've become. Right? People who give their lives to money become greedy and cutthroat and friendless. And people who give their lives to success become arrogant and restless and unkind to people who can't do anything for them. And people who give their lives to their own beauty become vain and shallow and insecure. But people who give their lives to Jesus develop a bold humility or a humble boldness. Look at verse 8 with me. Um, the humility, look at verse 8. Paul says, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. And there's a couple of things going on here. First, Paul's making a little joke. The Latin name for Paul is Paulus, which also means little and, or small. And tradition holds that Paul was actually a, a small man. And so, and so he's making this little joke about his smallness. And second, he makes up a word. He takes the superlative smallest and adds this, com, this comparative, turns into comparative, and so makes it smallester. And so he's saying that he's the least of the least. So in effect, Paul's saying this. He's saying, my name means little, I am little, and morally and spiritually, I am littler than the littlest of all Christians. And in saying this, he's neither indulging in hypocrisy or groveling in self-deprecation. He means it. He was deeply conscious of both about, about his own unworthiness because before he was an apostle, uh, before he met Jesus and Jesus changed his life, he persecuted and insulted the, the church. He persecuted and insulted Jesus. He was deeply conscious about his own unworthiness. And also he was deeply conscious about Christ's overflowing mercy towards him. He had humility. And he had boldness as well. Did you catch how he introduced himself in verse 1? In verse 1 he says that he's a prisoner of Christ. 
And in Acts 25, Paul is in Jerusalem and he is preaching this gospel that the Gentiles are co-heirs and co-partakers and co-members in the promise. And the Jews get so upset that they throw him in jail. So he's in jail in Jerusalem and then he's sent to jail in Caesarea and then he goes to jail in Rome under Nero. That he got arrested. The gospel got him arrested. Um, He had the boldness to proclaim this, even though it, it ended with him being in chains. Now, humility without boldness looks like timidity, right? Humility without boldness looks like frailty. And boldness without humility looks like arrogance. Boldness without humility looks like narcissism. But through the gospel, Jesus Christ creates this humble boldness in us. That when you believe the good news like Paul, you believe, cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you could ever imagine. But in Christ, you are more loved than you ever dare hope. And when you believe this, you become a person with humble boldness, with this bold humility. So is it good for others? Yes. Does it make me someone who I want to be around? Yes. And lastly, is it big enough to handle me giving myself to it? Can it bear my weight? Or if I throw myself onto this, if I give myself to it, will it collapse and will I collapse with it? Um, Paul says that his ministry, his service, his life's work is telling people about the mystery of Christ. So that through the church, he says this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What does this mean? Let me unpack this a little bit. Paul is saying that what Jesus is doing in the church, reconciling people who used to be enemies and hate each other, bring them together in one family so that God can dwell in them. Paul is saying that this has a cosmic audience, that it is on display for the rulers and the authorities. Like, That there is this whole angelic society that we can't see that God is doing this so that they can be the witness of what is happening in the church so that God can make his manifold wisdom known to them. When we read this together as a staff last week, Ellis's response was, that's really trippy. It is very trippy. Um, This is what John Stott says. I think this is really helpful. He says, as the gospel spreads through the world, this new Christian community develops. And it's as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theater, the world is the stage, and church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play, and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? They are the cosmic powers. We are to think of these angels as spectators of the drama of salvation. Paul is saying that there's this entire society of angels that is unseen to us. There's this cosmic reality of the universe that we cannot see or comprehend. And I know this sounds crazy. I know this sounds crazy. But we still kind of have a sense that this is true. Even in our secular disenchanted age, we still have a sense this is true, right? This is as secular as we are. This is why we love the Marvel movies, right? We, we love the Avenger movies because it's this human drama that takes place on Earth with cosmic with a cosmic audience and cosmic consequences. Um, I remember after seeing the first Avengers movie, um, and I think I saw it in the theaters, and I, I remember like a couple days later a thunderstorm rolled in, and my first thought was, Thor is coming. I don't know if you guys reacted that way to seeing Avengers. Maybe it was just me. Um, but it was just the, 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 the drama of there being something beyond what we see, a reality that is here but not visible. Um, resonates with us, even though everything that we experience tells us the contrary, right? Even though we're so materialistic and 
we think that this is all there is that is real. Um, we have this sense that there is something there that we can't see. And um, this is why we love horror movies. I mean, that's all horror movies are. They're saying, hey, there is something out there, and it's terrifying. Um, bad, bad aside. Okay. What Paul is saying here is that the reality of what God is doing in the church is that there is an audience that we cannot see, and God is doing something to show them how wise he is. And this is what he's doing. He's uniting Jew and Gentile. And he says it's this manifold, it's a manifold wisdom. And manifold here means multicolored. He's saying there's a multicolored wisdom here. That that God's wisdom in bringing um, different races, different ethnicities who hated each other, bringing them together in Christ, in the church, shows off God's wisdom to the world. Because the angels couldn't skip to this on their own, right? I, I guess what's going on is that the angels would look in at what God made in the world and see sin, and see what sin did to humans and how it divided humans and, and put people at odds with each other and divided people into people groups who could never get along, and their whole history was that they were against one another, and say, there is no way that God can redeem this. And then what God is doing in the church, taking people who hate one another, these people groups who are sworn enemies of one another, and uniting them together in Christ is to show to these these cosmic powers his great wisdom. That he has built one humanity, a new humanity that is um, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation together in Christ. And that shows off God's wisdom. That he could do the impossible thing. The thing that when the angels looked in and said, there's no way that anyone could do this. There's no way that people could be reconciled. That God has done the impossible thing in Jesus. And Paul ends this. He ends this section by saying, his last thing, don't worry about my suffering because it's for your glory. Paul's saying that my suffering, his being in chains, um, him being in slavery is worth it because of what it's accomplishing in the church. Now, secular culture says that the meaning of life is happiness. The way that you find real purpose and real meaning is your own happiness. And if that's the meaning of life, then suffering will destroy your meaning. When you encounter real suffering in your life, it will destroy that meaning. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can bear the weight of your life, even through the worst suffering. So in conclusion, um, I want to say this, that whatever whatever you do with your life, If you anchor it in Christ and his church, it will make the world a better place. It will make you someone who you want to be around. And it will give your life meaning and value you long for. Paul is saying that this is what is going on in the church. And after spring break, we're going to do a little series together on the church. Just do five weeks talking specifically about the church. Because I know that you guys have a variety of experiences. Some of you have great experiences with the church. Some of you have no experiences with the church. Some of you have really awful experiences with the church. My hope is that as we, as we look at how the Bible talks about the church together, um, we'll begin to see more and more what it is that Paul is talking about here. Answering the question, how is it that something that is seemingly so mundane, so broken, so inefficient, how is it that it's actually God's chosen vehicle for making his glory known, not just on earth, but in the heavens? So questions for you to consider as we leave here tonight. Um, what does your life bear witness to? And is it good for others? Does it make you someone you want to be around? Is it big enough to handle you you're giving yourself to it? And friends, I tell you with confidence that Jesus promises he will do these things and he delivers on them. Let's pray.